0: stomping jen
1: sawtooth
0: i don't go by sawtooth anymore yeah you are you're bucking the trend okay yeah okay. how you doing
1: i'm okay how are you yeah good i got a flu shot today though
0: you got a flu shot yeah my arm hurts how are you feeling other than your arm hurting I'm okay Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned a health related thing. We're going to be talking about a health related topic. Um, We have a couple of guests on the podcast uh, for this week. We have Alyssa Curran, we have Anna Martin, and Randy Grattan. And they're going to be talking to us about um, this national um, study called the Healing Communities Study. And, um, it is a program um, whose goal is to reduce opioid overdose fatality by forty percent over three years in four different states, uh, Massachusetts being one of them. Okay. And the program that they're working on is focused in our town, Belchertown, and another community right next door to us called Ware, Massachusetts. Um, so. Alyssa, Anna, and Randy are gonna talk to us about um, the work they're doing on this. Um and they may even share some of their own experiences with recovery. Great. Um okay. So yep. um it's an intense topic. Mm-hmm. You know, we're gonna we're, I think we're but it's an important topic, Absolutely. you know, because I think we've all heard about the um the opioid um, pandemic is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a national health crisis. It's probably even a worldwide health crisis. But we're going to focus on our little part of the world here. Sounds good. And see what uh, these great folks are doing to help. Okay. Yep. You ready to dive I'm in? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. All right. <laughs> Serve podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Stomping gems. we're back to singing. Yeah, I feel like singing. I've been you playing did. a lot of guitar you have lately. Learning playing. songs, mm-hmm. if you can believe it. Um, and one of the songs that I've been trying to learn... Um, is Purple Rain by Prince, who is somebody who tragically lost um, his life um, as a result of um, opioid use. Um, so um, I feel inspired to sing because I'm, I'm inspired by this, this topic, and I'm inspired by the work that um, Alyssa anna and randy are doing so i just want to take a moment um we're going to go around and say say hi to everybody so um Alyssa, hello and uh welcome to the podcast thank you for being here
1: hi everyone thank you for having us we're super excited
0: yeah thanks again for being here um randy um nice to see you and thanks for being here
2: excited to be here honored thank you guys very much
0: and anna hello welcome
3: Hello, everyone. It's my first time on a podcast. I'm excited.
0: (laughs) Oh, that is exciting. Um, Well, you know, it's just a bunch of folks sitting around talking, so that's really all it is. Uh, (laughs) It it feels and probably sounds more exciting than it really is, but uh, so welcome. Um, Well, I want to start our conversation with just understanding a little bit um, about more about the healing community study and uh, the role each of you play in this effort. So Alyssa I'd like to start with you if you could just give us an introduction to this study and uh, what you're doing.
1: Sure So the healing community study like you said it's um, its main goal is to to really just stop people from dying from from opioids. Um, I've been involved in the project for for close to two years now um and opioid use disorder was not something that I ever, you know, I was not a little girl thinking like, oh, this is what I want to do when I grow up is is work in this field um, but through you know my own journey into recovery, it's it's a topic that I've become really passionate about and um so this study is just such an amazing opportunity. Um, like you said, it's it's nationally funded, and it's very rare for Belchertown and where to get like this this national recognition and this this opportunity for funding. Um, you know, as you know, residents of of Massachusetts, we see a lot of the funding going to Boston, going to the Cape. Uh, when it does trickle out west, it's usually to Springfield, to Holyoke, to you know, sometimes Pittsfield. Um, but here in in the rural communities, we we tend to feel like an afterthought in Massachusetts. Um, so again, I'm just so grateful that kind of by by a little bit of chance, but more uh, advocacy from the amazing people that work in our communities, we were given this opportunity to to take part in the healing community study. Um, so I'm the community coordinator. And my role is to to pretty much be the voice of Belchertown and where, and I'm able to do that uh, for, for a number of reasons, but, but it's, it's mainly because I represent the coalition and what our coalition is, is it's comprised of community members. So it's not just people who work in the treatment field. It's, it's our, you know, our neighbors, our families, our friends, our people who work in law enforcement, you know, EMTs, pharmacists, we have providers, um, you know, we have everyone from from local policymakers down to, you know, like I said, the neighbor down the street and and, and faith leaders um, and arguably the most important people at the table are the people with with lived experience, um, people who have struggled with opioid use disorder or are actively living with opioid use disorder. These are the experts and they know um, they know what they need and they certainly know what they don't need as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you um, for, for describing your role in that. Um, Anna, what is your role in the, the Healing Communities Study?
3: Yeah, so I am the community-engaged facilitator. Um, and basically what that means for me is that I work really closely with Alyssa, and we co-facilitate this coalition in Town and Wear together. Um, My role is a little bit different because I actually work for Boston Medical Center. So the way that the study is working, um, as we discussed, it's being funded nationally. Um, The funding is coming from the National Institutes of Health to the National Institute of Drug Abuse to Boston Medical Center. And Boston Medical Center is managing the intervention within Massachusetts Um, in Massachusetts. Intervention is happening in 16 communities divided up into wave one and wave two. We actually just wrapped up wave one. So I just wrapped up a project um, working with folks out on Cape Cod um, doing this same intervention. And now we are transitioning over to wave two, and I'm working here in Belchertown and Ware. So, like I said, I facilitate, um, I coordinate with Alyssa, I do a lot of outreach, um, but The most important part of my role is that I do work for Boston Medical Center, so I serve as kind of the go-between between Um, between the community and Boston Medical Center. I'm able to bring information from BMC to the community and vice versa and make sure that we are all engaging in the study in a way um, that's appropriate and community-engaged. So the way the intervention itself um, is works as such, so about $500,000 is being given by Boston Medical Center to this specific community, so to Belcher Town and Wear Together. And with that $500,000, um, the coalition that Alyssa was mentioning with all sorts of people um, from different walks of life are participating in, is going to decide how to spend it on interventions that are evidence-based and going to impact opioid overdose deaths. And those um, interventions are going to fall into three categories. Um, So the first category would be overdose education and naloxone distribution. Um, So naloxone, I won't get into it too much now, but it is a pharmaceutical that is able to reverse an opioid overdose. Um, So if you were to run into someone who is overdosing, or you were around someone who was using and they were experiencing an overdose, you would be able to intervene. So that's one of the buckets is kind of pushing naloxone out and educating people on how to respond to an overdose. The other bucket um, is medication for opioid use disorder, linkage and retention. So we know that there are medications, methadone, buprenorphine, um, as well as Vivitrol, that can really help people manage their addictions um, and are evidence-based to prevent overdose deaths. So making sure that we are expanding those services, making sure that we are getting people connected to those services if that's what they want and things like that. Um, And then the final category, um, last but not least, is safer prescribing. So, um, you know, I think we all know about the history of the opioid epidemic um, and Purdue Pharma and their aggressive marketing tactics and how that got a lot of this potentially dangerous drug into the hands of a lot of people and really um, things snowballed from there. So educating providers on how to prescribe um, opioids and pain medication safely and also how to prescribe and manage pain medication with people that have a history of addiction, because just because you have a history of addiction doesn't mean that you should have to live with unmanaged pain. Um, So those are the kinds of things that fall into the safer prescribing category. And then kind of tying all that together with a bow is communications. Um, so making sure that we're getting the word out about stigma reduction, um, teaching people about naloxone, teaching people about um, medications, you know, going on podcasts, um, putting things in the news. And that's where Randy kind of comes in is with the communications aspect of things.
0: All right. Uh, thank you, Anna. <laughs> um, that is, That is a lot of stuff that this this program is covering. Um, Randy, tell us about tell us a little bit more about your role here.
2: Yeah, so uh, I just was recently named the um, communications consultant. Uh, I'm very excited. Um, my job is basically to help bridge the gap between the ignorant and the educated, as far as substance use disorder is concerned. Um, I'm a person who you know, relates very closely to this. I myself am an overdose survivor. I've lived in recovery for a number of years now, grew up and where my entire life, uh, you know, to be completely blunt, the first bag of heroin I ever thought was in Belchertown. So I've been on both sides of the equation when it comes to substance use and now substance use treatment. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting the word out and reducing the stigma on what um, this disease, who it affects and what it does to their lives and what we have available and what we can do to help people in the position that I was in before and that unfortunately so many people are still in. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I love this area. I'm a Western Mass Warren 3 boy through and through, so to have this opportunity to potentially help after living such a destructive life out here for so long is, uh, you know, truly a blessing to me.
0: Thanks. Thank you for thank you for sharing that, and I, I kind of want to give you all an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about what opioid use disorder is, or you know more broadly, if you want to talk about substance um, use disorders, like I I feel like there could be there could be people listening to this who may not really understand um, that this is a disease. Right. And so I don't know if you could just talk to us a little bit about the disease of um, opioid use um, disorder.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I can just talk a little bit about my my personal journey into recovery, um, not from opioid use disorder, but from alcoholism. So when I was 21, I went to my first treatment center and that was in 2011. Um, And I think it's important before I even get into this to just briefly go over the three waves of the opioid epidemic, because that plays kind of a critical role in the timing of all of this. So, you know, 1990s to to 2000s, that's when, like Anna said, uh, companies like Purdue Pharma were really pushing uh, prescriptions like Oxycontin and doing it in a really kind of uh, deceitful way. Um, so minimizing the risk of physical dependence and, and in a lot of cases like promising that, you know, this is a magic pill. You won't feel any pain and there's no side effects. I mean, I look at some of the commercials they used to run and then just blown away now knowing what we know. Um, so that, again, was late 90s, early 2000s. And then you know, the country started to see a problem um, that wasn't just impacting cities anymore. This was all walks of life, um, cities, suburbs, everything in between. And so what ended up happening was you had providers kind of abruptly stopping to prescribe these medications. Um, and with the physical dependence, people started to feel sick. And that's part of the diseases. You know, you you start to use opioids, and your body becomes tolerant to them. So you need more and more and more um, until you are taking, you know, ten times the amount that you were initially prescribed. So how that impacted people is a lot of folks ended up turning to heroin um, because it was, you know, more accessible, more available, um, it was much cheaper and i'm i'm not even going to you know touch upon the problems with our healthcare system that we right. we can't afford any of our medications um but that was the second wave was when people went from prescription drugs to heroin and that occurred around 2010 the third wave and the wave that we're currently in kind of began around 2013 2014 and that's when uh fentanyl entered mm-hmm. the drug supply um what fentanyl is, is it's a synthetic opioid that is, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I think it's something like 100 times stronger than morphine. And um, we have a, it's going to be part of our communications campaign. They have a picture of a penny with it, what looks like a, uh, a grain of salt next to it. And just that amount of fentanyl is enough to kill an individual. Um, so it's really Russian roulette with the drug supply at this point. And tying that all into the increased tolerance, um, you have folks who are using a lot of opioids just to, not even to get high anymore, but just to feel okay, to not feel like they're dying. Um, and that's where like, I can see the pathway to empathy is like, who wants to feel like they're dying? Um, so unfortunately, because fentanyl is so potent, we're seeing a dramatic increase in accidental overdose deaths. Um, So, you know, the numbers, 2019, 62,172 U.S. citizens died of a drug overdose. 2020, that number went up to 91,799. And then last year, there was over 107,000 overdose deaths. And that's with, you know, Narcan available, naloxone relatively available in a lot of communities um so we're seeing the numbers grow and grow and grow um
0: and that's despite so, despite the um awareness around the issue the problem is continuing to get worse
1: yeah yeah it's Jesus. um it's disheartening and you know especially for for the study um i think i i kind of shifted from we want to reduce the the overdose death rate to We don't want it to be as bad as it's going to be and kind of just having to, to live with that. Um, But, you know, in Belchertown and where, because these communities are so tight knit, the opportunity to have a tremendous impact is there. Um, And so tying that into my personal journey, like I said, I went into recovery in 2011. So that was right around the the second wave of the opioid epidemic so way before that, i didn't even know what the word fentanyl meant um but you know my my drug of choice was alcohol um i was a as as they say like run-of-the-mill alcoholic like a you know 80 year old wino trapped in a 21 year old body. And I was a very, very, very isolated drinker. I didn't want anyone around me. I didn't want anything around me. I just wanted to live in my own little world, which was in my own head. And um, so the good thing about that is I didn't need to change people, places and things. When I got sober, I just needed people um, so all of my people became people in recovery, people who had struggled with similar things, who like felt the way I was feeling. I mean, when I came into recovery, it was the first time in my life that I felt completely understood, um, you know, I come from a great family. I had a, a kind of idyllic childhood and that was part of the problem because in my mind, so much of the shame was like, I shouldn't be this way. I have no reason to be drinking this way. Um, so the shame was just, you know, very pervasive, but I found my community, um, you know, of, of kind of these like uh, like oddballs of society, but some of the most creative funny, intelligent, empathic, caring people in the world, uh, and hardworking. I mean, just in people who will go to the ends of the earth if it means helping someone else. Um, so I got sober in a community similar to Belchertown and where very rural kind of in the middle of nowhere is the Northwest corner of Connecticut, um, so similar barriers to uh, overcoming addiction and that there's no public transportation and a severe lack of resources. And that's what we see here in Belchertown and where as well. Um, what we did have going for us is we had kind of an oversaturation of residential treatment and sober homes. So it was like a little sober community, which was, which was awesome for me. Um, but as time went on, you know, 2011 through, in 2016 until the time that I I moved away more and more of the people around me started dying. And, um, you know, a lot of them were just people that I'd seen in meetings or, you know, pass by in the grocery store. Um, but they were people who were in their twenties and thirties. And at first it was, you know, obviously shocking. I, I can remember the first like one or two people, um, that I I cried over and um, felt felt deeply affected by their passing. And then over time, I mean, this is what the human body does is we're extremely adaptable and adverse to pain. So I just calloused over and I became somewhat numb to to death in a, a very unnatural death. You know, it's not normal to open the newspaper and see. You know 20 30 40 year olds in the obituary section next to 80 90 100 year olds but i i just normalized it and i really like calloused myself over like i said um until about i would say about 2018 um when one of my very good friends who and this is why i reached out to you guys because of the connection to the podcast Um, his name was Chris O'Connor. He ran a podcast called Dopey. Um, and he was someone who was kind of like in and out for a while, but had this period of sobriety that, you know, as, as his friend, we all thought he was good. Mm. Like we were like, ah, we can exhale. Like Chris is doing well. Um, and I was talking about this with Anna the other day that, um, another amazing feature of the, the human species is that, We create the worlds that we want to live in. And what that means is we ignore details that don't fit the narrative, that don't fit that world that we want to live in. So I know a lot of his friends and loved ones didn't want to see the signs. They didn't want to see the slurred speech or the erratic behavior. Um, We just wanted to live in a world where like Chris was good, like he was good um, until he wasn't. until he passed away and that's when everyone was like oh god we should have known like Mm it was it was right in front of us
0: did he and it gives me did he pass away from opioids was that he did Yeah, he
1: did and um and that's an important feature of opioid use disorder as well so um like i said the tolerance builds up but then when you get sober it resets it does not really do that with alcohol. So when I relapsed, I went back to drinking the same amount, if not more than what I was drinking before and didn't really have any adjustment period. But with opioids, um, after a period of sobriety, your body resets and um, you cannot use the same amount that you were using. So with people in early recovery who have a period of, of abstinence from from opioids, when they relapse, they tend to use, you know, similar quantities to what they were using. And, you know, between 2011 and, and current times, if someone was using heroin before, and then a couple years later, they relapse, they're not using heroin anymore. They're using almost pure fentanyl. There's no heroin left in Massachusetts. You know, it's, it's all fentanyl at this point. <sighs>
0: so scary yeah so take us from 2018 to now um along along your journey uh what i mean how did you how did you deal with the loss of your friend and how did that impact your own recovery journey did it did it strengthen it did it did it cast you into doubt how did what happened
1: i mean there were a number of other things going on in my life at that time that um you know, I completely uprooted. I changed careers. I changed, um, changed locations. I moved from Connecticut up to Massachusetts. Um, and like I said, there was just a number of things going on in my life, but in October of 2018, so this would be about, uh, five months after, after Chris's death, I relapsed with alcohol. Um, And was back out for about nine months until I got sober again in May of 2019. Um, But I have to say that his death really disenfranchised me for a little bit. Um, I was working in residential treatment and dealing a lot with insurance companies and kind of like feeling like I was playing God in some ways and that we had to kind of pick who was deserving of treatment? And unfortunately, it's never about like who wants it bad enough. It's about, you know, whose policy pays out the most each yeah. day. Um, who has so a- who I, has
0: access to the care, right? Like from a hundred percent financial yep. perspective yeah
1: yeah, yeah. And I think you know, some of the most frustrating cases were getting the phone call from someone who you know, maybe like a mother of of a few kids and um, and on state insurance and just doing whatever she can to get by, um, and just desperate to to get help and um, not being able to take her because we didn't take state insurance because we were private residential. Um, but then, you know, like gladly welcoming, welcoming in the the 19 year old who was on mom and dad's insurance, like their, you know, premium insurance, who like maybe wasn't interested in getting sober. And that was fine, too, but he was going to come in. Um, so, you know, I was I was happy to get away from from it um, and ultimately found myself uh, working in the Hamden County House of Corrections in the fall of 2019. So after you know six months of my own sobriety, I wanted to get back into the field of, of treatment and um, and really focusing on populations that just don't have opportunities. Like I was done with with private residential where people had the world at their their fingertips and wanted to help a, a community that maybe didn't have the same resources.
0: Wow. Um, thank you for sharing all of that um, with us. Randy, I want to, I want to ask you if you could share a little bit more with us, just kind of about how um, you found yourself in the clutches of um, opioid use disorder. Like, you know, t- to the extent you're comfortable sharing the details, like how did it, how did, how did it start for you? And like, how did you find your way out? Yeah.
2: Um. It was a it was a recreational thing at first. Um, you didn't have to drink as much in order to you know have your inhibitions go to the wind. You were uh, much more likely to hit the dance floor and talk to the pretty girl if you're you know. We started with little prescription Percocet splitting them as we'd go out, um, and it was just fun. It was uh, we almost recognized the danger to it as well and and respected it to an extent um and used it recreationally but um one of the defining things of having a substance use disorder is the progression that the disease takes upon you and uh you know it starts becoming once a month so once a weekend uh you know maybe a middle of the week and um for me personally i remember hurting my ankle playing basketball and having to work and being like, how am I going to get to work? And, uh, so I got a couple, you know, 30 milligram perks blue as we used to call them back in the day and went to work hoping that I could get through. And then before I couldn't even walk. And now all of a sudden, not only can I walk, but I'm, I'm more effective and better at my job than I was when I was sober without her. So I was like, Whoa, it was almost like, uh, you know, we joke around all the time. But it almost seemed like that. Um, what's that movie there with uh, Bradley Cooper? Where he takes the pill there um, and he automatically is able to do everything.
0: Oh, Limitless. what
2: is it? Limitless? Limitless. Yeah. That's the one. Yes. It's a good one. And we used to joke around about that. And, uh, you know, after you know, three or four consecutive days of using, it's too late. It's got a took in you. And now you battle not only the mental obsession that you have, the, 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 the physical sensation and the relief that it gives you. But now if you don't have it, you're crippled with one of the worst prolonged sicknesses that you could ever imagine. It's not like trying to, you know, stick it out for 24 or 48 hours, like you're, you're going to be sick for yeah. days and weeks. So I always say when I used to use, when I was in, in the height of my using, I truly believed and truly wanted it to be my last day. Every day was my last day. That's it. I have this plan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be done. But you know, your mind may be strong, but your body's going to falter. there. You, you know, and then if you feel like you're going to be able to make it through, then it's like, well, okay, I'm going to make it through physically, but then you're my fault. So it's got, it took, it's got, it took on you both mentally and physically worse than anything you could imagine. You know, nobody ever wakes up and is like, man, I want to go and be a heroin addict today. That's my goal in life is to be right. a heroin addict. And it just happens so quick. Then, you know. I wouldn't have identified as a heroin addict, uh, for most of my using until, you know, you look back I'm like, Oh my God, this is what I am.
0: Yeah. And, um, you shared with us that you experienced an overdose. Um, and, and was that, was that the moment for you that you realized that you had a, um, an addiction issue?
2: Um, so I had known I had yeah. been into treatment multiple times at that point, um, and had, you know, short bouts of sobriety. And, um, for me, I would always end up drinking or, you know, recreationally using marijuana. And for me, it would always end up back to the low bottom of, uh, of heroin. And, um, you know, it's crazy. Well, one of the things the healing study is going to do is try and bring access to naloxone to more people. Um, And actually almost four years, you know, four years and two weeks ago, I overdosed um, next to my now wife while she was seven months pregnant with our first son. And had it not been for the fact that we were educated on addiction and she had naloxone present, you know, my son James, who probably should be going to bed any minute now, wouldn't have a father. You know, and um, since then, I have been able to turn my life around and not use since he's been alive. And now I have another son and me and my wife are married and we just bought a house and wear. And uh, why? You know, why did I make it? Why why was I able to overcome this overdose and then leave that life behind when so many have died and so many um, are still in the throes of it? And luckily, that's what this healing study and the funding that we're getting is going to be able to help us hopefully increase the percentage of people that can find success like I have. So that there isn't ever an overdose. Obviously, you can't get rid of it indefinitely, but if someone overdoses, someone around will have naloxone because it's not a weird thing to carry anymore. Yeah. There's no dangerous side effects to it. So we don't have to be scared of it being around if it's in the house. I don't need to worry about it being in my cabinet if my three-year-old son grabs it because it's not going to harm him. And uh, I think that's something that a lot of people don't know. And if they did, there's no reason why there can't be a plethora of this substance around and uh, save some more lives. Because again, there's a lot of people that would argue, you know, well, they're getting what they deserve. They're heroin addicts. They're not good people. And, uh, you know, I like to consider myself living proof that a majority of us are and that we need to have that second, third, fourth, fifth chance in order to get it and now have a life that means something. I know it mean, my life means a lot to my family, to my two boys, and hopefully to our communities now as I, I continue to try and help way that I can.
0: Oh, God. I'm about to burst into tears. I have goosebumps, and I'm about to turn into a crying mess. Um, thank you for, for sharing those stories with us, um, um, Randy and Alyssa. And Anna, I, I want to turn to you briefly. And something I'm hearing from Alyssa um, and Randy is that uh, reco- recovery isn't necessarily a one-time event, right? It, it It's a process. Um, and... Um, you know, I I used to, I have shared this before on the podcast. I used to be a medical writer, and I I wrote um, around um, the physiology of addiction, um, and so I understand a little bit about um, the fact that most people on their recovery journey will experience. Um, one or more relapses. like that's normal, right? And it's to be expected. Yes. And people need the support around them to be able to to navigate that process of recovery. So I'm just wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. Um, maybe add a little bit more,
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, what Something that gets thrown around all of the time in recovery circles and in substance use academic circles is the idea that recovery is not linear. It's not a straight line from using to one day deciding, you know what, I'm going to throw out all the liquor bottles or I'm going to, you know, flush my heroin down the toilet and I'm cured and I'm done and it's willpower. That's not how it works. Um, You know, as Randy touched on, it is. There are aspects of it that are extremely physiological. There are aspects of it that are very mental. And I think mental illness is just as valid as any kind of physical illness that anyone could be experiencing. Um, So, you know, like Randy said, if you stop using when you've been using um, daily or, uh, you know, even just very frequently for a long period of time, you are going to feel horrible. And if You were feeling the worst that you could feel and felt like you were about to die. And someone said, hey, I have this one thing that's going to make you feel better. Why would you not take that? If you think of it from a human standpoint and just put yourself in someone else's shoes, like, you know, when you're sitting on the couch and you have the worst flu of your life and you're like, feeling horrible. If someone came and said, Hey, I've got this magic pill. I know exactly why this is happening and we can fix it right now. It'd be really, really hard to say no to that. So I think that's part of it. Um, I think that also life is really hard. Um, we all have different coping mechanisms that we use for different things that either are, may not be the most healthy. Like I know, like if I'm really stressed, stressed out, sometimes I'm going to like, go to the cabinet and get the whole package of Oreo cookies and eat them all. And it's going to make me feel horrible the next day. But I'm like, that's what I need in that moment. And there's nothing morally wrong with that, right? Seeking comfort in a way that could potentially bring you harm. Um, But a lot of people do experience, um, you know, any number of returns to use um, while they're trying to achieve sobriety. And another thing that I want to touch on that I think is really important is that recovery doesn't have to mean sobriety. I think like Randy and Alyssa are great examples of people who are in recovery and sober and living, you know, wonderful lives with that balance. However, a lot of people have different goals for their recovery. Like someone who is using alcohol chaotically um, may say, you know, I'm hoping to get to a place where I can have a social drink or two. And while that can be very difficult for some people, depending on what their situation looks like, it's not impossible. And I think that there could be folks who are using opioids. We should extend that metaphor um, who might say, you know what, I'm not ready to completely stop right now. I'm not ready to be sober. I'm not ready to let go of this thing that is doing something for me in my life. Because people do use drugs for a reason. They don't use them because they want to become addicted to drugs. They use them because they give them comfort um, in one way or another, or there's the physiological dependence. Um, But we should still support people in their recovery journey if their recovery journey looks like, I want to use less, or I want to use
0: less. And is this what we call harm reduction? I've heard that term before.
3: Yes. That's exactly right. And I forgot to mention this during my overview of the healing community study, but we are trying to come at these issues from a harm reduction point of view. Um, And I can explain a little bit what harm reduction is, because I know there might be some listeners that are unfamiliar with the term. So the idea is that people are going to do what people are going to do and that people have a right to tools that will allow them to do what they're going to do safely. So I think a great example is I have to get groceries. I'm hungry. I have to feed myself. I have a job. Um, I have to get in my car and I have to drive to the grocery store. It's not walking distance. And driving can be really unsafe. Um, There are a lot of automobile accidents that happen. Um, You know, you never know what's gonna happen when you get behind the wheel of a car. And that's why we have seatbelts. Right. I can put on my seatbelt. I can feel a little bit more secure in what I'm doing and know that I have a better chance of getting to my destination safely. And that's different from saying, oh, I'm just not going to drive a car. It's not safe and it's going to harm me. So harm reduction can be applied to... Um, To the idea of addiction and substance use. And I think naloxone, Narcan, which we were talking about earlier, is a really great example of a harm reduction tool. If you know that you're going to use heroin and you say, you know what, let me grab a friend and let me make sure that friend has naloxone so that in the case that I'm experiencing an overdose, I won't die, that's great. We want people to get to that place because. Personally, for me, as a as someone who works in the field of substance use, I don't care what you do. You have a right to do what you're going to do. You have a right. I personally believe that people have a right to use drugs if they want to use drugs. But where the issue lies is making sure that people are safe. People are taken care of. When people wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I may want to stop this. And I think I may want to go into treatment that they have that option, but that they're also supported every single step of the way.
0: Thank you for that explanation. Uh, Just sitting that with, with that for a minute and thinking about it. Um, You know, it reminds me we had somebody on the podcast, I don't know, like a year or so ago um, from Northampton, uh, a person named KB McConnell, who. Um, is part of an organization called Nothing But Kindness, and part of their goal is to you know go out and distribute Narcan and um, supplies, you know like hygiene supp- yeah, yeah, hygiene supplies, food and stuff for people who who may not be at that place, right? Who um, you know they don't want to die, so they want to have access to Narcan, and they just may not be at that place yet where they're ready to start you know, a recovery process. Um so I think it I think it's I think it's important for us to think about, you know, people are at all different places, right? And and you know, I think
1: offering support for where they're at.
0: Yeah. At the time that they're at. And you know, I think one of the things um that helping people a barrier that that is a barrier to helping people is this idea of stigma right and it's not happening in my town it's not a problem in my town and i want to i want to talk a little bit um with you um about the fact you know why did why did the healing community study focus on belcher town and where and um i'm assuming that's because they're you know, this might be a a locus of a, of a problem. And it is in fact happening in our communities here. Like, so Alyssa, maybe you could um, jump in on this one to start.
1: Sure. So every year, uh, DA Sullivan gives a report on uh, the landscape of opioid use disorder within his, um, his service area, which includes Hampshire, Franklin counties and Athol and uh, last year's data showed an obscene amount of overdose deaths in Athol, Orange, and Ware. Um, I think it was something like a 300% increase in Ware and something like 600% up in Orange. So thinking about the commonalities of those three communities, um, is they all lie along the Quabbin, um, and very far removed from, from services. So it's what what is called a treatment desert. Um, if you are a resident of uh, where, your options for medications for opioid use disorder are in Springfield, they are in Northampton, they're in Greenfield, they're in Holyoke, um, but they're nowhere near where. And if you don't have a car, that's not an option. Um, our public transportation system. I I love the Quaybog connector. I think it's a super underutilized resource. But you know, something like methadone that requires a, a daily appointment for at least the first couple of weeks. It's not feasible for folks who don't have a car, or maybe folks that do have a car but but can't, can't afford gas. Um, so these are some of the barriers that exist in Belchertown and where um we are in a treatment desert we don't have a ton of resources and we don't have a ton of public transportation so i think you know the great thing about healing communities is we get to decide what to do with this money um that it's not these like one size fits all strategies that work really well in some communities but wouldn't really be effective in Belgerton and where so I think a good example of that is um, in Wave One, Holyoke was was a community that benefited from the interventions of healing communities. And one of the things that they did was they um, they put what's called an nalox box, which is essentially like a um, looks like a first aid kit, but it has Narcan in it. And they set that up right outside of the recovery center, Hope for Holyoke. Um, they were they looked at the data, they made a data driven decision that, hey, if we stick Narcan here where people are overdose, overdosing, maybe that might decrease the overdoses. Like very, you know, one plus one equals two. Um and uh I heard kind of uh, one of the the big takeaways from that was someone did come across someone who was overdosing and they were able to go in, get Narcan from that Nalox books, just a complete stranger and reverse the, the overdose. And that individual lives today. Um,
0: wow, that's amazing.
1: Yeah. And a strategy like that in Belchertown may not be as effective because what we're finding in Belcher town is there's no centralized location for overdoses. We, we are, you know, I'm a resident of Belcher town and I don't walk anywhere. You know, nothing, nothing is, the nearest thing to me is, is stop and shop. And that's a five minute drive. And that's like a Mecca. When I go to stop and shop, that's like going to the big city.
0: We have a, we have a zero on the Zillow walkability scale.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I believe it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's no sidewalks in this town except for like one small area.
1: Well, and I see, you know, in in cities like Northampton, Greenfield, they're getting all these like amazingly cool electric bikes now. Yeah, we don't even get the. I mean, we live in like hills, like deep hills, so that would mm-hmm. that would be not my recreation of choice. But again, just another resource that wouldn't be effective for us, but is working great in other communities. Um, so, you know, but looking at the maps of of overdoses in Belchertown they're sporadic. And, um, and again, no, like hub, they're occurring in people's homes. And, you know, these are people who are taking their last breaths by themselves, um, with no one around. And maybe that's the point. I know for me, my addiction, the whole point was to be by myself. Um, but with, with opioids, I mean, you, you really want to have someone that at least knows what's going on. And, um, you know, there there is an opportunity, something like the box strategy that may work in where because we are seeing a more centralized location for overdoses. You know, it's a little bit um a little bit more centralized in terms of um like local businesses and um some like shopping shopping things. I mean I'm, it's like a downtown I'm, area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to paint where as if it's like this bustling metropolis, <laughs> but compared to Belchertown, that's yes. much more spread out, yeah um so you know there's an opportunity to to do some some different interventions even within the same like you know community that we've been grouped into for for healing communities
0: so like a town like belchertown you know if we could find a way um and maybe this is what the study is looking at right it we want to normalize you know keeping narcan in your medicine cabinet right like if you go to check on your neighbor and you, you find them unresponsive or, you know, you can, you you know, you could at least run back to your house and grab some Narcan and get next door real quick. And, and maybe yeah. that's what we want. Maybe, is that, is that the type of thing that the study is attempting yeah. to try to figure out? Yes. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly yeah right. definitely. And, um, and I think it's important to remember too, that overdose can occur, um, you know, across the board, it doesn't have to just be people who are struggling with opioid use disorder. I mean, prescriptions are tough, um, especially when you're combining them with other things, you know, providers don't always have the the time necessary to explain it. Um, so there are like plenty of accidental overdoses that occur from um, just, you know, the wrong combination of medication or forgetting how, how much you took. I mean, by, by nature of it being an opioid, it, it causes a little bit of brain fog. So, um, you know, especially for, for older folks, like having, having things like Narcan co-prescribed with their opioid and making it that, you know, the normalcy be on that level where like your pharmacist and your provider are like, hey, I'm going to prescribe you Narcan too, just in case, you know, not saying, not like <laughs> accusing you of anything. We just... We just don't want you to die. Why that's don't they do is.
0: why don't they do that? That's to me that like that should be an automatic.
1: Yeah. Well, that's you know, that's another like one plus one equals two thing where yeah. I think with these strategies, we're all kind of like hitting our palms against our forehead. Like, why hasn't this been in place before? Yeah. Um, something like that, I think, is a great idea. Um, and yeah, I you know, when when I heard it, I was like, wait, that's not happening. So, you know, something like that, we, we want to get, uh, get in Belchertown and where within the next year.
0: I yeah, mean, yeah, go ahead. Um, Anna.
3: I, I was just going to say, I do think that part of it is misunderstandings about naloxone and what it is. I mean, we've heard stories of, you know, hotel staff kicking people out of a hotel because they found naloxone in their room. Um, we've heard Story like i've gotten a lot of questions even from people in this field asking like is naloxone harmful if if someone accesses it who doesn't need it what if i give naloxone to someone and it turns out they're in a diabetic coma like things like that when ultimately we know that naloxone is not harmful i could snort it up my nose right now and i would be totally fine um However, there's a lack of education and a lack of knowledge and also just a whole lot of stigma and somewhat hefty price tag on naloxone if you're purchasing it outright. It's over $100. Um, however, with insurance, it can bring it down a little bit. And then there is something in Massachusetts called the Community Naloxone Purchasing Program where programs are able to get subsidized naloxone. Um from the state, but a lot of barriers that just don't need to be there. Yeah. yeah. So programs like Hampshire Hope um, and, you know, having
1: DART officers as well. So those are police officers who are specifically trained with um, an addiction background and how to respond to calls about addiction, opioid use disorder. Um, you know, that's a great way to bring Narcan into the community. So something that I've been doing in Belchertown in partnership with the, the Quayback Hills Substance Use Alliance is um, it's passing out Narcan at the farmer's market. And making it just as normal as like going to get your fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, we we are blessed to have the Belchertown uh, farmers market this great little event every Sunday um where there's they have their community resource table. Um, and this is a community resource. So we're there, we have our Narcan, you know, every once in a while we'll pass it out and, um, and people will come up and they'll ask the the questions that Anna mentioned, you know, like, what it, is this going to be harmful? And we're happy to provide the the education as well. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's just really important to decrease the, the stigma and, um, there was a post that went kind of viral on the Belchertown community forum last I w- year. I was going
0: to ask you about that. Yeah, I would talk about that, please.
1: Sure. So um, it was it was you know just a normal Narcan farmers market, and uh, one of our partners had posted on the forum um, free Narcan at the farmers market ten to two, um, and I saw that she had posted it probably around I don't know nine in the morning on a Saturday. And then I went and, um, you know, didn't look at Facebook for a while. And then when I logged back in, I would say four hours later, it's like 350 comments. And I was like, I'm guessing all 350 of them aren't like, we love you. And this is great. Um, so yeah, it was a tough Saturday reading through some of the comments. Um, you know, why, why should someone, uh, why should you revive someone? They made a choice. Um, why is Narcan free, but my insulin isn't? Um, you know, a lot of the the talk about insulin and what, I mean, we're just frustrated with our healthcare system. But, yeah. um, you know, it's that quote, like, other people who are suffering are not the enemy. Um, so... Ultimately, like there were far more positive comments than negative ones, but the negative ones hurt the most. It's like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So um, it was like an active practice in trying to read the positive ones to, to outweigh the negative ones. And even with the negative ones, like that's just an opportunity to provide, you know, data, education, empathy. So many people responded with personal stories. Um. You know, I'm a I'm an individual in recovery. Narcan saved my life. My daughter wouldn't be alive if it weren't for Narcan. So, um, you know, it ended up being a, a great tool for for how to respond to some of those more negative comments. And we had more engagement uh, at that table the next Sunday than than any other time that we had been there. And I think more people got Narcan than ever before. We passed out so much Narcan that day. Um that Sergeant Lozier, who was working with us as well, had to run back to the police station in order to to get more. So um so
0: maybe the the negative attention that blew up the post was a, a blessing in disguise in some ways because it got you know it got attention on the post and maybe some people came to that that market to get narcan narcan who otherwise may not have. I mean
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean it was kinda like the no no or bad publicity is no pub- still good publicity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. No such thing as bad
0: publicity. Yeah. There and, you go. And as we're talking about publicity, um, Randy, I'm kind of looking at you in this communications space, um, and thinking about the the importance of the task of reducing stigma. Um what are some What are some ways we can talk to people, you know, a, a, about this issue? I mean, you know, I get a I get a great sense from, you know, some people I've interacted with in in our town here in Belchertown that this isn't a problem in our town, right? You know, it's just just a couple of people maybe who are who are struggling with addiction, right? <laughs> and um, I, you know, I think we all know that's not true. Um, those of us sitting here, so. How do how do we begin to talk to people and communicate with people to, to try to reduce stigma? And and how, how how might you be thinking about it from the healing um from the healing community study and maybe more broadly for the rest of us too?
2: Yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting topic. I think there's definitely been a reduction in stigma over the last five or ten years, specifically just um because more and more families who never would have thought that they would be affected by substance use are now. So out of a necessity for the amount of people that are using that stigma has started to go down. But I still see, I still see people in town that I've known that know my history, that know the exact nature of it, that if it comes up in conversation, they'll kind of, shy away from the opiate side of it and kind of be like oh yeah well you know with your drinking problem and stuff and, and they can't say it and I get it it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about it it really is and um that's what you know me being a person now in the community I coach little league and where I coach uh, a high school basketball team that just played at the across the station of for people to see me in a role outside of, you know, being a heroin addict under the bridge with which most of them projected as in their minds. And then to learn afterwards that I've come from this is gonna be a strong tool, I think, in reducing the stigma. And the more that we're able to engage with people who have had some success who are still in the throes of it. And we start realizing that it's our neighbor, that it's not, you know, isolated people that have you know this horrible that are horrible people from horrible backgrounds that you know brought it upon themselves but it's our neighbors and i think the more that we're able to get on podcasts like this and open the conversation and and you know as as people in recovery ourselves not be ashamed i know a lot of people and wear that because of the the amount of stigmas, they don't even talk about it or identify it. They've just kind of swept it under the rug. Like we have to be proud for what we've come through. Not many people make it. Like not many people make it. And we've made it through and now um have an opportunity to be the voice of of hope, I guess. I guess you could say. Yeah. And it, um oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, please.
2: And 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 now we have the this healing community study where we have this evidence-based data come into play so now we're able to take the experience that someone like me has and learn from the professionals I like to call them on the most effective ways to use what we've been through use what we know use who we know and bridge that gap in order to uh you know get the lines of communication open I mean (sighs) Uh, throughout history things that were were very stigmatized have become very normal i mean it wasn't what 75 years ago that you couldn't drink from the same water fountain as a black person you know and look at how far we've come in that time so now in the infancy stages of opioid use being destigmatized we're already making good progress so you know we're hoping to continue that and have it You don't ever want it to be a normalized thing. Obviously, it's not, you know, it's not like a healthy thing that we want people to just accept. But we need to accept that it is a problem and we need to understand that there are solutions and that there are resources available and things that we can do, even if we're not somebody in recovery or affected by it. And uh, we can all play a part in making things better. You know, that's Mm -hmm. hopefully what we're going to be able to do.
0: Yeah, there's an element of shame reduction that we need to you know try to accomplish right both um you know I, I think I don't know how to quite say this um uh you know like I you know I how do I want to say this so it's something I've experienced right like this January I'm gonna you know be three years since my last drink right and I and I and I did that because I found myself um and alyssa it I think it it parallels your story, Randy, it parallels your story. Like I found myself in a place I never thought I would find myself, which was um, very close to the, you know, for me, it was close to the precipice of, you know, a serious like alcohol problem. And like, I didn't, you know, I didn't quite realize it until it like hit me one day when I was, like, I was walking around my garage doing something. And I, like, I stopped myself because I was thinking about what when I was going to have my next drink <laughs> like and it, like it just came out of me it came at me out of the blue right and I was like I think I have a problem here right and then I began like looking at my behavior and I started thinking to myself yeah you know like you're now buying the 101 proof whiskey not the 80 proof whiskey and you make sure it's 101 proof and any beer you buy has to be you know 10% alcohol or more and I started like and I started realizing I was like going through a bottle of whiskey a week. And like, I was like, oh my God, like, how did I end up here? And like, I felt a great amount of shame about it for a long time. Like, but here's the messed up part
1: yeah. now we don't drink, and everybody looks at us like we've got like five heads. It's like the only drug that you're socially acceptable to. And like, you tell people you don't drink, and then they're they just like, oh, well, you don't drink.
0: Yeah, and, and, and it's like s- the
1: opposite. It's so weird.
0: Yeah, and I'm not you know, I'm by no means like a, a straight edge minded type of person. Like I leave I leave room for people, right? To um um and this goes to what you were saying, like, you know, if if you can if you can responsibly use cannabis and it doesn't hurt you, fine. Go ahead, like and not hurting the people around you. But um what I'm saying is I guess we need we need some amount of shame reduction around recognizing that these substances that surround us in our, in our lives have the, have the potential to grab us all. And if we find ourselves in their grip, we're not alone. There are resources, you know, luckily I, I luckily I live with a supportive partner and we both like came to this realization at the same r- roughly around the same time that we wanted to, you know, cut alcohol out of our lives. Um, so I, I think, um, I think that's a big part of this, you know. Um, I don't know. Just listening to you all wanted, wanted me to share my story again because it's been a while since I've talked about it openly in, in yeah. this kind of detail. But um, Anna, I wanted to ask you. Um, one of the goals of the program for the Healing Communities program um, is to get people access to medicines right. That can help, yeah. help opioid, um, um, addiction. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, cause some people may not know that there are, are, um, medicines that people can take to help them, um, uh, in their recovery.
3: Absolutely. Um, so this is something that I learned about when I entered the field, um, I kind of came into the addiction field from an academic standpoint, but also from a family standpoint. Um, I was a chemist in college actually, and I um, kind of learned about the physiological model for addiction. And then I've also had a lot of extended family members struggle with addiction. And this has allowed me to kind of see them in a different light and have more compassion and, um, you know, I just kind of realized that this was something that I was interested in and that I wanted to do. Um, But when I entered the field, there was like so much to learn. There's like a whole new language. You want to not be stigmatizing and, you know, you have to get up to speed with all the evidence-based practices that a lot of people who aren't in this field might not be aware of. Um, And anyway, one of the first things that I learned about is that there are incredibly effective medications for managing addiction. Um, So, namely, the the big three that people are aware of and that are um, FDA approved to treat um, opioid addiction specifically are methadone, um, buprenorphine, also known as suboxone, and um, Vivitrol, otherwise known as naltrexone. So, the way that methadone works is, um, Alyssa was talking about this a little bit, you have to go to the clinic um, every day to receive your methadone dose. There was a little bit of relaxation on those rules with COVID, um, and a little bit more flexibility with take-home doses, but, um, the typical process is that you would go every day and get your dose. And methadone is what you would call an opioid agonist. So if you think of your brain receptor, um, as a little dish an opioid or yeah, As a little dish and say heroin is a ball and you put the ball in the dish and it fits perfectly and it covers up that receptor. And then you get all of those warm, fuzzy feelings um, and the sedation and the things that you would associate with being high on heroin. Methadone is what you would call a full agonist. So that means that methadone actually acts in the body similarly to heroin. But you're being given a controlled dose of it that will not be dangerous to you, that will allow you to function in society and not um, be uh, relatively impaired and will basically just prevent you from feeling that horrible withdrawal flu that we're talking about. And with methadone, some people are on it for a long time um, and use it kind of as a maintenance treatment, the way people might use an antidepressant or, um, you know, a blood pressure medication or something like that. Some people use methadone as a tool, as kind of a, a gateway to not being on any pharmaceuticals. Um, they would do methadone for a while at the clinic and then slowly taper down on their dose until they felt like they were at a place where they didn't need it anymore. Um, And, you know, some people use methadone for years and then taper down, um, but some people use it for your whole life. So that's methadone. Um, Suboxone or buprenorphine, um, suboxone is the like patented name for it. Buprenorphine is the generic. um, So we kind of use it interchangeably, but it is what you would call a partial agonist. So going back to our bowl and ball model, imagine you like partially deflated the ball and kind of tucked the side of it into itself and then put that in the bowl. So you would have a little space in the bowl that's exposed, um, and also a little space that is being um you know, has that the receptor is touching the ball. So buprenorphine um, basically partially interacts with your opioid receptors. So it does a similar, kind of thing where it prevents you from feeling sick. Um, and it, um, can help you manage those withdrawal feelings. And that is a little bit less kind of restricted because it's not a total agonist like, um, like methadone is. Um, so people will take films. Usually, um, they're little films. You put them under your tongue for X number of minutes and, then you know the medication is in your system um the something that is a bit of an issue with suboxone is that if you don't have a period of sustained abstinence abstinence prior to starting it um you can be sent into something called precipitated withdrawal so say you haven't you are going in and you're interested in starting buprenorphine if you've been using heroin for several days in a row prior to doing that, and you still have a little bit of heroin on your receptors, the buprenorphine is going to kick that off and it will give you a little bit of um, help, you know, by being on the receptors, but you won't feel good. Um, So you, yeah, Randy's shaking his head. Um, So you would want to kind of make sure that whoever's receiving this medication would have a period of abstinence or is getting, um, there are new systems where you can kind of microdose buprenorphine in the beginning and um, mitigate some of those effects. So that's methadone and buprenorphine. Those are the two kind of most evidence-based medications for opioid use disorder. The third one that I mentioned briefly is Vivitrol. Um, A lot of people know of Vivitrol or naltrexone as an injection, um, that you receive. And that is what you call an antagonist. So that would be going back to our ball and bowl analogy. I don't know why I chose a ball and a bowl, but we're rolling with it. Um, no pun intended. It,
0: it works. <laughs> be- I, I can follow you. Yeah. So it works. Okay.
3: Perfect. Yeah. I'm trying here. Um, so that would be like, if you took your bowl and you put a pot lid on it and you covered it up So then if you bring in the ball, it's not going to be able to access the receptor because it's been lit it off. So that is something called an antagonist that basically blocks your opioid receptors and makes it. So you could try to use as much heroin as you want. You are not going to get high. Um, This can be really effective for some people. However, it doesn't do anything to help with cravings. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything to help with, um, you know, those feelings of withdrawal and that sickness that you're going to experience. And then there also is a risk. Um, it's a monthly injection and it can taper down in efficacy towards the end of the month. Mm -hmm. So say you're on day 28, 29 of that Vivitrol injection. If you, um, you know, pick up some heroin and try to use it, you may be able to have a breakthrough high and you can actually overdose in that case. Um, if there's not a lot of the Vivitrol in your system, um, but overall, all of these are wonderful tools that can really help people achieve whatever their goals are in terms of recovery. I think that they're not one size fits all. I mean, a lot of people, um, Enter recovery through abstinence only approaches and um you know things like AA and NA and that can be really, really effective for some people. But I like to explain medications um as like a piece of the recovery pie. So if you think of recovery as like this pie that you can have various different slices. So you might have peer support. Um, Randy's other gig, he's a peer recovery coach. So, you know. You might have meetings with Randy once a week. You might have groups. You might have counseling. Um, And all of those things can make up your pie. Mm -hmm. A part of your pie might be medication. Um, And that is wonderful and valid and also not necessary if you're not interested in that as your route.
0: Do people have trouble getting access to these medications? And is that one of the things that the study is is aiming to... Uh, analyze and fix.
3: Yes. Um so I our listeners can't hear but I just kind of giggled in reaction to that question um not because it's a silly question but because that's exactly right. Um access is a huge limitation um especially with things like methadone. So I think a great example if we're thinking about where um if you are in where and you'd like to do methadone treatment your options are in Orange and in Springfield. And if you don't have a car and you would like to get public transportation to your methadone treatment, you can take the bus to Springfield at eight in the morning, get to the methadone clinic, get your dose, and it won't pick you back up until 4 p.m. Yeah. So you can't have a job yeah. in where and be beyond methadone if you don't have a car, which is Extremely dangerous, especially when you think about folks who maybe are getting released from prison and going back to where and have been started on methadone in prison and then are not able to access that maintenance dose that they need. Um, So, expanding access to medications is extremely important, especially in these rural areas. It can be a huge barrier. And I think, kind of like what I was talking about with naloxone and harm reduction. My goal as someone who works in the field of substance use is that anything that you want that's going to help you on your recovery journey, you are able to access at low cost, at little wait time, and you know within a reasonable distance, which at this point just isn't the case. And I truly think that that is one of the things that is keeping us from alleviating a lot of this epidemic.
0: Mm. Oh, it's so frustrating. I yeah. can think of a billion solutions. Like, why can't <laughs> yeah. we have like a mobile, like unmarked methadone uh, nurse uh, <laughs> that goes out? You know <laughs> what I gonna mean? He's going to join the team. Yeah. Yes. Get me, get me on the team.
3: <laughs> I will say that DPH, Massachusetts Department of Public Health, is interested in innovative methadone. So they have a couple grants, um, that will allow people, you know, organizations have to have the resources to be able to apply for grants and the knowledge of, yeah. you know, all of that stuff. And they have to have an existing methadone clinic. However, there are some mobile methadone grants that are available right now and that you're right on track with that mobile units in rural areas. Like like Alyssa was saying, one plus one equals two. It's a great idea.
0: Yeah, and you know, or we have like a gazillion vacant storefronts in our town, right? Like right next to CVS in Belchertown. Why can't the state subsidize you know a clinic to set up there for a period of time or something? I don't know. Like there's yeah lots of re- I think lots of ways communities could come together to try to help you know figure out how to support. People in the communities who are struggling. Um, so, what I just want to pause for a minute and just tell our listeners, right? We're talking about a lot of stuff related to this uh, healing community study, and I've put a bunch of links in our show notes. Okay, I mean, you know, pause this whenever you want. Um, go off and take a look at the website. Um, you know, I have uh, I have a whole bunch of l- links to everything we've been talking about here. Um, so I encourage you to go and, you know, dig into the website, you know, learn more about the study, um, can learn more about the study in this area, um, in Massachusetts more broadly. In your but, area, potentially, yep, in, if
1: you're not in Belchertown. Anywhere. Yeah, that's right.
0: We do have people who listen to this all over the country. Um, so, um, go there, take a look at these links, okay? Um, and, and, and dig in and, and, and you know, take a look at those resources. Um. I, wanna, I wanted to ask you all, um, you know, kind of shifting a little bit away from some of the details of the program, um, you know, and I, I want to start with Alyssa, like, what is the most challenging part of doing this work for you? Um, talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, you know, it's good work. It helps people, but I think it probably also comes with, with challenges, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I can get lost in the big picture sometimes where, um, you know, I, I look at the problem from kind of the wrong end of it. And I look at like the deeply rooted problems with our healthcare system and the ingrained stigma, especially in smaller communities and, you know, the kind of like, uh, uh, just the, the problems with the pharmaceutical companies and the money that goes into it. And, you know, thinking about my time feeling really disenfranchised by insurance companies deeming one person more worthy the, than the other. When I'm focusing on those big, you know, un- insurmountable problems, I'm not focusing on the individual right in front of me who maybe does have a solution um, or maybe, you know, has has a ton of options. So when I'm focusing on all of the like quote unquote, unsolvable problems, um, then I it, it's easy to become defeated um, and to lose hope. But when you are focusing on the one individual and hearing the the personal story, you know, like hearing from Randy and, and about how he's like coaching little League and and all this stuff, but how at one point in time it was very real that um, his son might grow up without a father. That's motivating that I can get into. That makes me forget about all of the other problems. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. fuel for, for going forward. I think, you know, getting, uh, into recovery, I was, I was pushed by pain. It was all consequence. Like I stopped drinking, not because I had so many great things going on in my life, but because the, the cost started outweighing the benefits, um, but why I stayed in recovery is because I started to get pulled by vision. So, you know, things like working in the opioid treatment program in the jail and seeing how you can really like impact someone's life. If you just give them like the simple access to tools that other people have, um, they could get on the right path for, for maybe the first time in their lives. Um, that's what kept me in recovery is just being able to, to like use my, you know, like part of my language, but like shitty experience and make something better of it. And that makes it very hard for me to have regrets about my past too. Um, it, it's a way for me to like kind of come to terms with, with everything that has happened um, and that I've done because it serves, you know, somewhat of a, of a greater purpose. Um, and to your point about shame, it made me think about the, the quote from Dr. Brené Brown that says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. But if you put the same amount of shame in the Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. So that's what we need. We need empathy. We mm. need to feel what other people are feeling, um, and then and then, shame can't survive that anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. Thank you. Um, Randy, I want to ask you the same question. Um, what do you find what do you find to be the most challenging aspects of this 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 good work you're doing
2: yeah so um, like Alyssa mentioned briefly I also work as a uh, a peer recovery coach um, in the area and out in Springfield area and you know a uh, big challenge for me is knowing when and where to establish boundaries um, it's such personal work to me that I'm so passionate about that I need to make sure I'm able to maintain a balance in my own personal life and that, you know, my, uh, I'm not up at 8 30 at night and not able to put my kid to bed because I'm engaged in, in my work. But then again, I don't want somebody who has a small period of, um, willingness to enter treatment or to change their lives pass by so to really uh be able to uh, strike that balance and and be aware of you know setting strong boundaries for my time and my own personal recovery because i'm not insusceptible to making one big mistake that i lose everything again it's just the reality of it um But again, that comes with a great connection to mentors and supervisors and and colleagues and friends like uh, Alyssa and Anna. And, you know, they say the opposite of uh, addiction is connection. So to be able to have the things in place to maintain that balance. uh, You know, I say you can't be in this field unless you're able to deal with a broken heart on a daily basis. Um, it's not about trying to avoid that pain and, and the heartbreak that I see on a daily basis, but it's having a, uh, you know, a daily routine and, and, uh, a belief system for me, my faith in order to be able to kind of see the beauty in a broken heart, if you will, yeah. you know, and, uh, be able to bring myself back to a place that I'm operating from gratitude. Rather than like Alyssa said, it's so easy to focus on how much of it I mean, percentage-wise. What are we dealing with here? A vast majority of the population that we're dealing with, statistically and historically, has not gotten it. And to even take on that task in the first place is like you know climbing Mount Everest in a tank top and shorts. Yeah, but there are many small victories. On a, on a sometimes daily basis that makes it so much worth it and that we have to focus on to uh, know that what we're doing isn't just uh, banging our head against the wall, but you know, one saving one person's daughter and giving them the opportunity to change their life is what it's all about. And, you know, the more we can do that, hopefully, hopefully that'll spread just as quickly as the pandemic did. And then we won't looking, be looking at such uh, daunting statistics,
0: you know, yeah, thank you, thank you for sharing that, um, Anna. Same question for you. Um, you know, you you you're dealing, you know, with 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 a very a broad scope here in terms of you know um, the the larger picture of the program, right? Like, and what what are what are challenges that you that you're facing and that you you struggle with in doing this work?
3: I mean. There are a lot of different challenges that come up when with doing this work. I think like what Randy said, like figuring out how to stay focused when you're constantly dealing with really devastating content. Um, I think I talk about this a lot with my colleagues at BMC is like sometimes being like we're having a lunch meeting and we're looking at maps of where people have died, like this mm. feels really really weird. Um so i think that's a big part of it like trying to kind of manage and create a balance of like letting yourself feel those emotions but also knowing when you kind of have to like roll up your sleeves and um separate yourself a little bit in order to move forward with the work and serve people effectively. Um i also think just stigma, stigma stigma stigma, misinformation um and Those kinds of people that will just argue with you about anything. Um, And like, I think internet trolls are a great example, but I think we all know those people that are like real life internet trolls in person. And you're like trying to have a conversation about um, saving people's lives, which seems like it should be pretty straightforward and simple and something that everyone could get on board with. But um, you're faced with a lot of, backlash. Um, And then I also think like trying to be creative so that you are able to break out of your echo chamber a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I work with a lot of like-minded people, which is amazing. You know, we sit here and we talk about syringe access, like it's the most cavalier thing in the world, which, you know, we would, we would love it to be super accessible and not stigmatized and all of these things, but then you go out into the real world And you're at a function, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm trying to expand syringe access," and they're like, "What are you talking about?" So um, tailoring yourself and your ability to communicate to allow yourself to interact with people who may be newer to the topic, I think, is a big problem because you don't want to like come in so hot that someone is immediately like, "This is too much for me."
0: No, know Mm -hmm. your audience.
3: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Know your audience. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, I'll throw this question out to anybody, and maybe all of you have a different answer for this. For people listening to this who might be inspired to help um, the the healing community study, either get involved with it or help in some other way um, with this with this effort to um, help reduce opioid deaths. Um, how can they how can they get involved what can people do to help
1: so i think what's important is anyone can be effective um that's the beautiful thing about this coalition too is like you don't have to work in the field you don't really have to know much of anything about opioid use disorder because even someone new to the topic has value in decreasing stigma um and just learning about it so um I think this is like the easiest way for people looking for for a sense of purpose, a sense of connection to others. Um, yeah, get on get on the coalition. Like, email email me, email Anna. Um, we are always happy to meet with folks one on one if they can't make the coalition meeting times. Um, but the important thing is, is like we want to hear from everyone. Like I said, I mean we have we have Da Sullivan on on our coalition. And we also have like a student who just volunteers her time to pass out naloxone at Grenville Park every month. And both people have have value. There's no hierarchy. There's no, you know, this person has more to offer than this person. Every single voice on the coalition is is vital um, because, again, the community members are the ones who are the experts in this. It's not... It's not, you know, like the anonymous person from uh, across the the country who's just throwing money out here. It's like we, we get to decide how this money is spent. Um, it's just like such a kind of revolutionary and cool idea to me.
0: I love that. Thank you. Um, did anybody else want to offer up a way to get involved? Yeah.
3: I mean, I think a great way to get involved locally, wherever you are, is um, do some research on where you can get Narcan, um, look for a local harm reduction agency, um, you know, see if your Department of Public Health makes it available and get some and carry it and carry it proudly and tell people in your life about it, um, explain what it is, watch YouTube videos about it. um, Because ultimately... You never know when you might come upon someone experiencing an overdose and it would be really amazing to be able to save someone's life in that way. Also talk to your friends. Um, you know, I think a lot of young people, especially people my age dabble in recreational cocaine use and things like that. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is that, um, even our cocaine supply is becoming really contaminated with fentanyl. So talk to your friends about, about the risks, start locally, um, start small. You can, you know, even access materials from harm reduction agencies like fentanyl test strips, which can tell you if there's fentanyl in your drugs. Um, but I really think like taking care of the people around you and then also think twice, like the next time that you are berating someone with an addiction or calling someone an addict or even like an alcoholic or using some of those loaded terms, especially if you're not someone who experiences that. People are going to self-identify however they want, and they absolutely should. But as people who are outside of the community of people experiencing addiction, it's not appropriate to use derogatory language um, towards people who are experiencing these issues.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Before we move on to our our last couple of questions um i just wanted to throw it out there was there anything else that you were really hoping that we covered that we didn't get to um i want to make sure we have an opportunity to to get to everything you were hoping to cover all right that means i did a good job in my research (laughs) and you all did an amazing job um talking too so uh thank you um you know, I want to share with people. You know, we do a little pre-show chat um, usually before we start recording, and I told Alyssa, I told Randy, I told Anna. You know, I, I, I'm trying to keep these these podcasts under an hour, and we're we're already at an hour and thirty five minutes, and and it's felt like half an hour to me. So, um, that's that's a sign that we've had a really you know meaningful, great conversation. So. Um, When I'm not looking at when I'm not looking at the clock, and I don't notice how fast the time's going. So I just like I really want to thank you all, Alyssa, Randy, Anna, for um, talking to us. You know about um, the healing community study and um, all. You know the the very important issue of um, opioid use disorder and um, your efforts to try to reduce the number of deaths that are that are happening here in our community. So, um, just thank you so much. So, um, so now I'm going to move to our kind of, um, I like to see, see these as funner questions. <laughs> so, um, lighten so, the mood a little yeah, bit. lighten the mood just a little bit as we wrap things up. Um, so, and any, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll, we can go around, but I love to ask people, you know, what do you like to do for fun? Um, what, what brings you joy? Um, what brings you joy in life? How do you reconnect with yourself when you're not working or whatever? So, Alyssa, we'll start with you.
1: Sure. So um, I am on my paddle board as much as possible. Um, I just need to be near water or on water all of the time. And um, my friend Kendra here in town runs SUP 413, and that's how I got into paddleboarding. Um, and it's become like a huge part of my, my recovery too. So doing paddleboard yoga, um, and you had mentioned, uh, music in the beginning. So about, I don't know, six to eight weeks ago, I secretly started taking violin lessons. Mm Um, and so I go to, to Jerry's music shop in South Hadley on Mondays at four o'clock and everyone else taking lessons is probably 25 years younger than me it's it's very much like a scene out of billy madison Um, but i do it anyway i'm not not good at all but um it's a good practice in like lowering my own perfectionism it's like i don't have to be a concert violinist i just want to learn how to play a song that's
0: it. I love that. I That's love awesome. that. Thanks for sharing that with us. And as you know, as an old person, um <laughs> getting into trying trying to learn a musical instrument on my own, you know, it's it's been invigorating and fun, like for me. I was you know, like I've kind of just learned to play um Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Like it's my own take on it, but like and poor Jen has to listen to me play oh, this. Oh, it's not just me. Well, the whole house has to listen to me too. play this like 15 times a day. But yeah. but like I realized like, oh, it really is all about practice. <laughs> like you have to practice this shit to know how to do it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> repetition
1: Um, practice but my brain just is not taking in information like it did when i was a kid so when i have Mm -hmm. a family of my own like they're getting into music they're learning every language possible like i'm taking advantage of that like moldable brain before it turns into what mine is now where like i can't read sheet music and i don't think i ever will be able to
0: all right uh randy uh same question for you what do you what do you like to do for fun what brings you joy
2: Oh man. Uh, my family really, I'm, I'm, I'm such a huge family guy. Uh, my, my mother, my father and my wife's mother and father and our mother and father's mother and fathers all live in the area where, or Belchtown or Warren. So, and now I have two young boys of my own, Kobe and James, uh, three and a half and two year old boys. So they keep me very busy and and I'm just uh, you know, head over heels in love with them. And my wife, we just got married last year, so I'm very busy with my family. Um they're just great. It's given me a purpose in my life. And uh, you know, I'm also an athlete too. So I'm playing sports, they're going to the gym. That's been a huge part of my recovery as well. Uh actually, well, always, they're not gonna be able <laughs> boxing. to see me, but Eight count boxing is a, a you know a little um, gym I started right here and where not many people know about and I work with oh. young kids I work with uh, some people in recovery and it's kind of a, a really uh, a really great outlet mentally and physically to kind of help you have something in your life for structure and to and to look forward to um, you know and it's just uh, it's a beautiful life I wake up every day kind of pinching myself like. This is my life today compared to where it was. And you know, just trying to again portray that and, and pass that message along to people that may be struggling. Like it doesn't it, it it can be obtained. Um there's light on the other side of it and uh yeah, that's that's what I love to do.
0: All right. Thanks, Randy. I appreciate that. Um Anna, how about you? What brings you joy?
3: So At the risk of sounding a little bit materialistic, (laughs) I'm very into like fashion and clothes. And I think for me, it's kind of a form of self-expression and a kind of, um, artistic aspect of myself. Um, I love like thrifting and vintage shopping. I love going to flea markets, um. That kind of thing. I uh, spend a ton of time with my partner and her two cats. Um, I like to just stare at the cats for long periods of time. Um, that brings me a lot of joy. And then music. I mean, I've got some music posters in the background. Um, one of my favorite things about music is its ability to kind of ground me, um, whether it's kind of taking my mind off of whatever I'm feeling or grounding me more in whatever I'm feeling. Um, I find that just kind of like sitting and listening to music or even going on a long drive and listening to music um, is really um, peaceful for me.
0: All right. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, We're, we're, we're cat people too. Um, Being held (laughs) hostage by a dog though. Um, (laughs) We have, we have a nine year old dog who, it uh, doesn't like the fact that we're really cat people, right? That's true. Yeah. True All right. Story. All right. My last question, and I apologize to the first person who's going to get this. You're screwed. All right. Um, the rest of you will have time to think about this question. So, um, out of fairness, I'm going to reverse the order, <laughs> Anna. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm putting you on the hook here. Um, what have you experienced um, that you have a hard time explaining? This is a question we ask all of our guests Um, and it could be anything. It could be a paranormal thing. It could be uh, you don't understand why the sun is yellow. I don't know. I'm just, just curious if you have an answer. Is the sun yellow? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. Um, What have you experienced that you can't explain?
3: So this is a bit of a story, (laughs) but I'm very excited about this question. All right. So. Um, and this feels a topic appropriate. So we had a family dog growing up named Lewis and one day Lewis, he was a very stubborn dog. He kind of ran away out into the neighborhood, um, and came back several hours later and just was not right in the head. (laughs) Like we were like, what's going on with Lewis? He's drinking so much water. He's standing by the treat cabinet like he's wobbling around we had no idea what was happening with Lewis, and we took him to the vet and they said either you know your dog um ate a poisonous mushroom and these are his last few hours or he somehow got into a large quantity of marijuana (laughs) nobody in our family I mean, I was in high school. My sister was in high school. Um, we were very straight laced high school kids. Like, no one in my family was smoking any marijuana or ingesting any marijuana or any of that. But the next day, sure enough, um, the dog went to the bathroom and it was immediately apparent due to the odor. Oh my that, God. Uh, large amounts of marijuana had been consumed by Lewis. Lewis. So, <laughs> Lewis. So, <laughs> that um is something i can't explain i have no idea how he accessed that where it came from um that's awesome or where he went when he escaped that day but he was fine he lived several more years that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy <funny. laughs> thank you for sharing that um I hope that was an adequate answer yeah that's that was perfect.
0: that was great uh, where did lewis get all of that pot we'll never know All right. Thank you. Um, Randy, I'm going to ask you the same question.
2: Something that I cannot explain. Yeah.
0: What can't you explain?
2: That's an easy one. I cannot explain women. I just can't. And I've stopped trying to, and, uh, the more I've stopped trying to figure them out, the easier my life has been, uh, cohabitating with one. um, yeah, I, I guess I'll keep it simple and keep it light, and just say uh, just say women in so, general. Yeah. Nice. Love them to death. Don't get me wrong, but uh, the less I try to understand, the uh, the easier life is for me. All
0: right, thank you for sharing that, um, Alyssa. Same question for you. What have you experienced that you cannot explain?
1: Well, I mean, Randy's answer, I can't explain (laughs) that because I had just like messaged Anna after he gave the whole family answer. I was like, Randy's DMs are going to be packed after this. (laughs) Um, So that's unexplainable. But I think it's like, I don't know. Sometimes I think we get these like free universe highs and I don't know, like I can't explain the actual feeling, but it's like the moment when you realize like, you're hungry and you don't have any food. And then you remember like you have leftovers from the night before in the fridge and you get that like fun little like reminder that life is wonderful or that like a new episode of your show comes out or like the next season of succession is on next when whenever it is. <laughs> and you just like, it, it creates like a free high almost. Yeah. Um, And I get that too. Like you know, out of the blue, sometimes just hearing someone else speak, it's like, oh, this planet's awesome. Like I sound very like hippie, kind of airy fairy, but that's the best way I can explain it is just mm. that like free high that the universe gives us sometimes.
0: I love that that's answer. Awesome. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. All right. Um, Alyssa Curran, Randy Grattan, Anna Martin. I want to say thank you. We've come to the end, um, despite me telling you we're only <laughs> doing do it an hour. We're only doing an hour. We have crossed the hour and 45 mark. Um, I am honored that you joined us, and I am so grateful for this conversation. Um, I'm hoping many, many people listen to it and that they are moved to... Um, take some kind of action to help with this problem that the Healing Community Study and all of you are endeavoring to address, which is this, this um, epidemic of um, opioid um, use disorder and deaths. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for giving us the platform.
1: Yeah, thank you. You definitely gave me that, like, free little universe high.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got to say, like, um, the number of times I've gotten goosebumps or my <laughs> scalp was crawling with, um, what do you call that? that nice. No, that sensation. Um, crawling scalp. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what it, you call it. Anyways. <laughs> I get right. what you're saying. You though. get what I'm saying. Um, yes. So, uh, thank you all. So, um, just a couple of notes for our listeners. Um, so you've heard all of this and I know, I know you want to help, right? So go to the show notes, click on the links. Um, and you know, there, there are small ways you can help. There are going to be big ways you may be able to help. Um, but whatever it is, um, you heard Alyssa, you can email Alyssa, you can email Anna, um, Randy, I wasn't sure if there's a way to get in touch with you. If not, that's okay. Um, I don't know if you if you're listed on the website or um, I don't know if you wanted to say. T- uh, <laughs> uh, well, go ahead. Anna knows how to get in touch yeah, with me. Yeah,
2: just get than in
1: I touch I with to Anna. Okay, and get, she'll
0: get in touch with. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> okay, get in touch with Anna. She'll she'll connect you with Randy because um, he's going to be sorting through all those DMs. He's yep. going to be busy with that so yeah. all right um so listeners jump in and help okay that's what i'm asking you to do here um jump in and help um because this is going to be a, an ongoing community effort all right for us to move the needle on this issue um now the other thing listeners i want you to do and this is going to sound incredibly selfish of me i want you to go to our website the soft check that out okay um uh, you know we have over 200 episodes at this point, right? Um, and you you can you can dig in. We have lots of amazing interviews like this this one, conversations like this one we've just had. So um, dig into our catalog and check it out. Um, leave us a uh, message. Connect with us. Connect with us on, social, with media, us on social media. Leave share us, with a friend. Share with a friend. Leave Do us. All a, the things. Yeah. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We always appreciate that. So. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've gotten a new one, so give us another one, please. I'm begging you. Don't make me beg, please. Uh, that's it, right? That's it. All right. You've so reached the end. We have reached the end. The last thing we're going to do is just go around and say goodbye. Um, now, you may have a unique way of saying goodbye. You may not. You just might say the word goodbye. I don't care, but I'm going to allow you all to say goodbye in your own special way. So, um, Alyssa, I'm going to start with you.
1: Well, I'm normally in bed by 9 p.m., so I'm going to say good night.
0: All right. Thank you. Uh, Randy, this is your chance. Say goodbye. Thank you, guys. Peace and love and good night. All right. Thanks, Randy. Um, Anna.
3: Thank you so much. First podcast experience. I'm very excited. Um, and my partner brought me some cupcakes, so I'm going to go Great. eat those. Awesome.
0: All right. Um, those are thank like... you.
3: Little, little universe highs. Or Stomping cupcakes. Jen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stomping Jen, do it up. Say All goodbye. Right, bye now. All right, I'm not going to drag this out, folks. Uh, you know. Bye now.
2: This world of ours, ever growing
3: smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of
2: others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.